Hold on to your butts. Hello and welcome to episode 39 of the Reviewed Movie Podcast. I am Ivan Kander, and as always, I'm joined by my co-host, Mike Morandi. Hello, gentlemen. And we are we are abandoned by our other co-host, Dave Glanz, because he had a baby, so he has a valid excuse not to be here tonight, but we have someone even better than Dave Glanz. I would say oh so. Oh my goodness. So well, maybe he's never going to listen to this. I hope he doesn't. But we have Eric <laughs> Diaz, who's joining us today via Skype. Say hello, Eric. Hi, everybody. And uh, this is the podcast where we talk about classic movies in a modern cinematic context. On today's episode, we are going to be talking about the 1986 film uh, Blue Velvet by uh, David Lynch. Um, so if you want to reach us on the internet, you can find us at reviewedpodcast.com, at facebook.com slash reviewedpodcast, and you can email us at contact at reviewedpodcast.com. But let's get into it. Let's get down to brass tacks. Let's, let's discuss David Lynch's uh, Blue Velvet. From the mind of David Lynch comes a modern-day masterpiece so startling, so provocative, so mysterious that it will open your eyes to a world you have never seen before. She The uh, reason I brought you on this podcast, Eric, is I know you're a huge David Lynch fan. Um, yep. And um, I thought you'd be a perfect person to talk about this film, a film that's always confounded me for years. And Mike, being the co-host on this podcast that has seen no movies at all, I'm <laughs> guessing has never seen Blue Velvet. Is that correct? No. No, never never got around to it, no. <laughs> so um, it's going to be an interesting perspective. It's going to be uh, the hardened Lynch fan. There's going to be me, who has a, has, a, has a passing admiration for Mr. Lynch. And there's going to be Mike, who I basically threw him into the cold water and I expected him to swim. <laughs> wow. So, um, so I, I, I'm going to start with you, Eric, going okay. into this. Blue Velvet, um, well, okay, so I watch a lot of short films for uh, shortoftheweek.com and I get a lot of experimental films sent my way. And you could, you could argue that a lot of David Lynch stuff is very experimental and whatnot. Um, but in, in viewing experimental work, how do you separate... Um, a movie that is is genuinely good from just pretentious crap, and does right. Dave, how does David Lynch supersede that? And what are your thoughts uh, on Blue Velvet in his canon of work? Well, Blue Velvet um, is probably my favorite David Lynch film. Um, uh, well, first question: How do you separate it from like pretentious crap? I, you know, I think, you know. Uh, there's like a genuine feeling behind what David Lynch does, as opposed to like a lot of that kind of like experimental film that just, you feel the attempt at being weird as opposed to David Lynch's David Lynch, just his stuff is weird. He is weird. You he know what I mean? Yes. He, 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 there's not any attempt at him to try to be different. That's who he is with a lot of that kind of stuff that you're talking about. You just automatically feel like this is someone who's trying to be weird as opposed to someone who genuinely is, I think. And I think you can almost smell that right away whenever you watch anything that's like Lynchian or trying to be, or, you know, that could even extend to Stanley Kubrick wannabe stuff too. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like it's just, there's just the feeling of it's not genuine. Um, as for how I came into like blue velvet or how I, or David Lynch's work and stuff. Um, I, it, to me, it's his best movie. It, it, it's not the first thing of his I ever saw. Um, I kind of came in like a lot of people through Twin Peaks, which is my favorite show pretty much ever. And then I was 15 the summer that Twin Peaks came out. 
and became obsessed like a lot of teenagers in that year. And then that summer in between seasons, I just devoured, tried to find anything that I could about David Lynch. And, you know, everybody was saying in the media, it's like, oh, Twin Peaks is Blue Velvet, the show. So immediately I had to go find out what this Blue Velvet was. <laughs> so I went to like the mom and pop store, you know, video store when they still had those. And I rented it and pretty much immediately became like obsessed because it was so, you know, it was like Twin Peaks without filters. You know, it was like, we don't have to worry about network sensors. You know, this is this is unhinged you know, craziness. Um, and I do think it's like pretty much his best film. I mean, when I say I'm a David Lynch fan too, I should add, I'm a David Lynch fan from about the point where he created Blue Velvet till Mulholland Drive. There's a lot of stuff after and before that I can't really Well, he hasn't with. been that prolific in the last few years, to be no, honest with he, you. Um, well, you know what? Maybe I should go back. And I, we've probably gotten our, ahead of ourselves a little bit. Can you try to, I mean, okay, let's say someone's listening to this podcast and they've never seen Blue Velvet. Can you try to give me the elevator pitch of what this movie is about? The elevator pitch, I would say, is it's like a Hardy Boys mystery that goes completely dark. Like, it it, it, it sort of sets up this kind of all-American Scooby-Doo, I don't know if Scooby-Doo is the wrong word, but like Nancy Drew kind of mystery scenario that suddenly goes into this like dark abyss that is maybe you're not expecting if you've never seen it. Do you know what I'm saying? It's, it's, it's the dark that's heart of good. Americana. I think yeah. that's a, you know? I think that is a good way to sell the film. Yeah. Um, I'm going to come back to you in one second, Eric, because I, I want to expound upon why you, this movie connected to you the most out of all the Lynch films, but I'm going to go to my Lynchian virgin now, Mike, <sighs> and I'm going to ask you, how was your experience with David Lynch, and how much do you hate me right now? I feel like <laughs> I, I feel like I was. What's the, the main character's name again? I don't even remember. I what. just know it's played uh, by Kyle McLaughlin. I right, actually right, don't right. remember his character name, uh, which is terrible. Eric. Eric. Oh, oh. Um, Jeffrey, Beaumont. Uh, Jeffrey Beaumont. Thank you. My God, he says Jeffrey it like five Beaumont. times in the movie. I don't know how to remember. They, anyway. In my experience with David Lynch in this movie, I think very much how Jeffrey Beaumont feels the entire movie. I felt like he said a David Lynch virgin going into this, like, what am I about to experience? And I think the beginning starts out semi-weird. And I'm like, okay, there's a guy watering the lawn, then he just keels over, and the dog is drinking water, and then there's a bunch of bugs underground. I'm like, what is, what's going on here? Okay. Then it kind of evens out, and it seems to be a little bit more normal. And I'm like, all right, it's a little, it's a little artsy. It's not so bad. And then once you get to the scene with, like, when Dennis Hopper rolls into the apartment and he's, like, yelling and he's got the helium mask and it's just, he's making those noise. I'm like, what? What am I watching? And to paraphrase, well, actually not paraphrase, to quote my girlfriend who's watching at the time, she says, how is this a movie? <laughs> Which is pretty accurate, I think. And I think at that point I had the same sentiment. Um, as it went on, I think it made somewhat more sense to me. I, I liked it more, I think, as it went on. Um, I think it became more concrete and like maybe a little bit less weird, um, but still by no means like <laughs> uh, it's still somewhat of a jagged pill. I think you know and and and. Well, it's not a movie that you're going to sit down and watch with your parents. How about that? No, no, <laughs> no. But my parents went. My dad took my mom to see it, in the, <laughs> not knowing. You know, it was like this movie that was getting all these good reviews when it came out. And I mean, I was little at the time, so I, I, I don't know. But I always laugh and I always ask my dad, I'm like, what was that like? <laughs> Making mom see this. Well, and I guess they didn't make it through the whole hey, thing. Hey, I heard it's a really sweet coming of age story about a kid who tries to solve <laughs> yeah. a murder. It's good versus evil. And... Um, well, I mean, to be fair, Blue Velvet is, I think, one of David Lynch's most conventional narratives in the sense that 
It is totally. a film noir mystery, and it does totally, and it resolves itself. And uh, there, there are plot elements. If you if you get further into his work, like a movie like Mulholland Drive becomes even mm-hmm. it becomes even more this this dream dreamlike surreal experience. Blue Velvet, like you said, Mike, is still grounded in in an actual narrative. Mm-hmm. It just has these underlying dark tones. Um, it's a it's a film that in revisiting, I haven't seen it in quite some time, and, and rewatching it this past week. I've come to realize that I think it's more fun to talk about than it may be to watch. <laughs> no, because there are so many amazing yeah. ways to interpret this film. And the reason, you know, just to answer my own question, which I asked Eric at the beginning, is what separates this movie from Pretentious Fluff, is that I think that Lynch actually has a point behind a lot of the weirdness. I think he's actually trying to make a statement about a few things. Yes. And yeah. and as you said, Eric, he is a genuinely weird guy like if you follow mm-hmm. like the personality of lynch like even when he was on louis which i think is my favorite thing he's done in the past 10 years he was on the uh, season three of louis yeah. he played a i don't know if you watched that but he plays this amazing like character that encapsulates his weirdness in a greatly comedic way so he is he's a fascinating individual and i think this movie is a great reflection of his personality um okay so eric okay. Wh- I-, I think you kind of answered this but what about this movie intrigues you? Like, why do you, why do you, even, do you like this movie better than Mulholland Drive? And why do you hold it in such high esteem as a Lynchian work? I, I do like it better. I think it's, I love Mulholland Drive a lot, but I think that Blue Velvet has a little bit more of a heart to it. And it also has a great villain. I mean, Frank Booth is a great bad guy who's insanely quotable. I mean, yes, he's horrible and the things he, he does are terrible, but. He gets, you know, great lines that are kind of fun to watch. I mean, after you've seen it the first time and you're horrified, it's that way of like, then you kind of go back to it and be like, oh, my God, like some of the stuff he's saying is kind of hilarious or the performance is hilarious. You know what I'm talking about? Like, well, it's, in that this, way, it's this crazy um, masculinity combined with this really strange vulnerability and yeah, weakness. Yeah, like yeah. he's both um, he's both the father figure and this child at the mm. same time. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what makes it so oddly weird and compelling. And then, of course, the breathing in the mask is just... Yes. Yeah. Is, it, it, it's terrifying, but like you said, it's also hilarious. Like yeah. I think I've seen this enough time where I find it really, really funny. Um, I, we've, so, been, we've done a lot of Dennis Hopper on this podcast. Yeah. I feel like this is the fifth, fourth movie, fifth movie. We had so Hoosiers. we've done Hoosiers, we had... we've done um, Speed. Speed. <laughs> um, what else is he in? He's one, at least one more thing. He's been in a lot. Oh, oh, oh uh, the one with uh, Christian Slater. Uh, a, uh, uh, a true romance. Thank you, me. true romance. Yeah, um, this was a big comeback movie for him. He was kind of off the list for a while. What, was because he like of in his drug problem? Yeah, yeah. yeah. He had a lot of problems, and it was this was a big comeback, and he got nominated. And it, you know, I think a lot of those movies you're talking about came kind of after. They did because he was, mm-hmm. you know, blacklisted kind of. This was in this. I think, as you uh, stated, this is kind of the resurgence of Dennis Hopper in modern cinema because he was this big '70s icon, and then mm-hmm. he kind of fell off, and then he came back with this movie. Um, so I guess I'm gonna try to. Okay, so you watch Blue Velvet, and. The immediate question is, what is this movie actually about? Thank you. <laughs> um, so let, let's let's just dive right into it. Um, and I'll give you my my theories. And this is theories that are not entirely my own. I've cobbled it together from reading about this movie and what I've taken to believe. So ostensibly, it's... Can, can I go first? Because I think you're probably going to have a lot more to say. <laughs> Mike, what is this movie about? <laughs> I, I, if I had to guess one thing, and I want to say, actually, a couple of things. It, it, it reminded me a lot of um, The Graduate. 
Really? There was a lot. Yeah. <laughs> Strangely <laughs> enough, there's a lot of sim- like weird similarities of like, you know, the main character is kind of caught between older woman, younger girl, right? Innocence and this depravity between the two of them. Um, it, it, it has a lot to say about, I think, um, around the 50s. It, the movie is, doesn't take place in the 50s, but it seems very, yeah. you know, around that time period. It's supposed to comment, I think, on on just suburban utopia and what could be going on beneath the surface. There's a lot of that, that shot, a lot of the, that uh, theme, I mean, where you see this, like, things going on beneath the surface, the unseen realities mm-hmm. of life. And I think there's a lot of, uh, you know, I feel like that, that was a similar theme in... Um, in the graduate, and there was also I, I I couldn't help I never I never cracked the code of this I never figured out what the, the colors mean but there was there seemed to be a lot of symbolism with blue and red and um, Eric maybe you've figured it out I I was doing some research I couldn't find anything um, but it seemed like there was some significance to the colors they were just a constant repeat of these two colors over and over and over again so um, well I know he loves those colors I mean the red curtains appear in Twin Peaks they appear in Mulholland Drive. He likes that bright red, and I couldn't tell you why he likes it or what it means, but he he uses it a lot. Yeah. Well, I think uh, you. I think that you, for, for, in a general sense, you hit the nail on the head. This is a movie that is exploring the seedy underbelly that hides behind the white picket fences of Americana, right? Like the scene, <laughs> the movie, and it, the, essentially the opening sequence of the movie is a short film in its own right. It shows this beautiful idyllic, uh, you know, city. I mean, sorry, uh, suburban, suburban town, yeah. and you see the firemen waving at you, and it's blue skies fence, and flowers, flowers and picket fences, and a man who's watering his lawn, which is another iconic image of that milieu. All of a sudden, has a humongous stroke in a, a horrifying way and then from there we enter into the ground and see all the bugs crawling around. And can I say that bug shot I think for me may have been the most disturbing which is to say a lot in this kind of movie there's something about that scene of watching these bugs it looked like they were eating each other. Well, the that, sounds and the visuals of that were just like oh. Well that's another testament to Lynch as a filmmaker. He does this mm-hmm. in a lot of other movies like there's a scene in Mulholland Drive and I don't want to hang up on Mulholland Drive but I think that's my favorite Lynch movie which is why I keep bringing it back up but there's a scene in a diner Emma Holland Drive with a homeless person. You know what I'm talking oh, about, no, Eric? so terrifying. It's yeah. the scariest scene I've ever seen in any movie. Any, any movie. But it's not like, it's not a conventionally horrific scene in the sense that it's not like you're just, you're seeing like blood or anything mm. like that. It's just so creepy. And that's what he captures very well with that, you know, the bug sequence and whatnot. Um, but my theory in this movie, and maybe you can back me up, Eric, but my theory of this movie is this entire film is about a, a, a young man played by, you know, Jeremy Beaumont coming to terms with an abusive father. Um, and mm. the whole movie, mm. and okay, so I hate saying this because it, it, I, this is such a cliche, but the whole movie is essentially a daydream. Because the way, think about how the movie ends, and, you know, we're skipping ahead here, but the movie ends with Jeremy kind of like waking up on his backyard in a lawn chair, like he's just been awoken from a reverie. And then, so what my theory of the movie is, is his father has this massive heart attack. He's called back to his hometown and he visits him in the hospital. And from there, we kind of enter this dreamlike world where he's dealing with a lot of things, both the, his abuse from his father, as symbolized by Frank, Bo- Frank Booth as this kind of abusive character, and his mother, as symbolized by the um, Rosalini character. Um, and there's this weird Oedipal thing going on with mm-hmm. her, mm-hmm. obviously. And then um, it's kind of him dealing with that. And this idea that he, you know, ostensibly to outside world, he's had a great relationship with his family and his father, but in his head, he knows that there's this deep darkness underneath it all. And then at the end of the movie, he kind of comes to terms with that. He shoots Frank Booth. He literally 
kills away that part of his personality and then he awakens refreshed and whatnot. So that's my... I got to say, you tried doing this at Fight Club. I think... Um, okay. <laughs> but I'll, say th- I, I'll say this. I think that that does make a lot of sense. I would almost say that maybe instead of looking at the main character, I would say maybe look at um, uh, David Lynch and maybe this is supposed to represent something in his life, either consciously or unconsciously, something that he, maybe he, proje- he projected into this movie or wrote into the movie. I, I think, I don't know, I read this movie, I take it at face value. I think these things actually concretely happen. I mean, yeah, you could certainly look at it that way. Um, I think these are things that actually happened, but maybe they are representing something that happened in David Lynch's life. Maybe he had a somewhat of an abusive relationship with his father. And Well, Eric, do, is there any validity in interpreting a Lynch film in this way? Like, is it worth even... Yeah. Do, is it, I mean, is it's it, David Lynch. You can... No, but yeah. it, it, is it worth doing that? Is Or is it just one of those things that movie fans like to do where we cobble together these kind of theories? and Or is there evidence to support those kind of readings? Oh, no, there's totally evidence to support those kind of readings. I personally think take it literally of this movie anyway. Um, but considering his other work and the fact that he likes to repeat themes over and over, you know, and that kind of, you know, parent abuse situation comes up in other movies and stuff of his. Yeah, that's not a crazy reading at all. I mean, I don't particularly take it that way, but I, I, I do think it's literal, you know, the, the events of the movie. But um, I can see your point. Well, as soon as he discovers that, or as soon as we kind of, uh, he discovers that ear and he gives it to the police captain. I think there's this shot where it cuts to the ear being like consumed by uh, bugs and stuff like that. That's in the. F- mm-hmm. um, I think that's when it kind of takes a very surreal twist. Like the movie goes from, yeah. oh, this is a conventional mystery story, like you said, a Hardy Boys mystery, and then mm-hmm. goes into some very, very dark places. Because soon after that, we have Jeremy Beaumont in in her apartment, uh, this lounge singer's apartment, and all this crazy stuff's going on. And it's it, see the thing about Jerry Bo- Jeremy Beaumont. Jeffrey? As, sorry, Jeffrey. Right? I'm Jeffrey. such an idiot. Jeffrey Beaumont <laughs> as a character is that he's kind of a creep. Like he's he's yeah. he's got In this his own way, yeah. he's got this all American facade, but he's really like he's weird. He's he his obsession not only getting into the apartment, but for having no real good reason to do so and invading someone else's privacy and becoming this peeping tom and keeping on pushing it. And like there's something definitely dark and weird about him as well. And I think well, that Well, Sandy brings it up in the movie. She's yeah. like, "I don't know if you're I don't know if you're a detective, detective or, or a pervert." pervert. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I and I think that and the character of Sandy's great too because she's not only is Laura Dern great. I love her and I wish she was in more stuff. But um she is this innocence like she's the uh, mm. you know she's the 1950s cheerleader type you know yeah. so yeah um so let's talk about some symbolism let's talk about bugs man it's did you nice. notice how many bugs are in this movie like oh, yeah. symbolically yeah. like um well two oh he sprays for bugs he sprays for bugs as an exterminator you got the, you got the stuff on the ear the ants on the ear ants on the what ears. else you got it's when you've well first the opening scene with all those kind of bugs yep um, yeah. So just the amount of insect, what does that what does that mean? <laughs> I mean, I feel like that's well, that's the I mean, vermin. I think is is just the um, is symbolic of just what you know. We talk about the underbelly of. I feel like in, in many ways the movie is about loss of innocence. I feel like that's obvious, right? But um, you look at this kid who comes from uh, my take, where his parents weren't abusive, and he comes from this you know wholesome household with these nice parents, and his grandmother lives at home with them, and he works at a shop with nice people, and. And then he kind of, and they keep saying over and over again, it's a strange world. You know, this idea that like, you know, there's some weird stuff out there that we don't even know. I mean, even us personally, I, I mean, we go about our daily lives. I have a very light, uh, whitewashed life. Nothing really weird happens in my life. But there are some screwed up people out there doing some weird things right now. Mm-hmm. As we speak, there's weird stuff going on. 
No, I think, well, yeah, yeah, go, go ahead. Mean, in, in, in your lawn, I mean, that's the whole thing. It's like, here's a very, like, picturesque scene of all-American, like, you know, yeah. home. And, you know, right underneath there, there are bugs fighting each other over territory and food. And there's a little war r- raging in your lawn right now that we don't think about because it doesn't affect us. And it's not, you know what I'm saying? And that's yeah. to me, it, it's maybe it's kind of obvious, but I think that's really what he's just trying to say. Like, there is a dark, horrible world right underneath our noses that we don't pay attention to. Now, do, do you actually get, I mean, Mike, uh, I guess I'll turn to you. When watching this, were you engaged in the mystery, like finding out who these people are? Or did that become totally secondary from you, for you? It was you? secondary. There was nothing about it that seemed like, for me, a mystery when there's something intriguing. We were like, huh, what happened there? Like, I feel like there wasn't enough of... You know, I think the ear they kind of give away too early where he just says, I think it's her husband's ear. I think you don't reveal that. Let us wonder what the ear is and where it came from and why it ended up there. You know, I wanted to see more like questions that would, you know, without an answer. And then we want the answer more. So I wasn't really pulled into the the mystery. I was more pulled into like, what is the hell is going to happen here? (laughs) (laughs) Well, when you have a character like Frank Booth, I mean, that's it's impossible to uh, it's impossible to know where the movie's going to go. I mean, to be fair, Frank Booth, I don't know. He he felt to me he didn't feel real to me. I feel like everyone else in the movie, to an extent, felt somewhat real. He did not feel to me. It felt like Dennis Hopper. It felt like Dennis Hopper just kind of going over, like a, a variation of his speed character, just this like <laughs> over the top maniac. I'm like, ah, I don't know anyone. I mean, I, I appreciate how insane he was. Um, actually, the, I think the most intriguing character was the guy with the. The powder on his face. Oh yeah, that dude. That oh, was just yeah. so weird because he seemed like this like very passive dude, and then he starts beating the crap out of someone, and then he's like singing into a light bulb. Now, I think it's he maybe was, the signature scene in the movie. I, th- I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Why don't you? Um, do you mind? Do you mind kind of discussing that scene, Eric? Kind of giving people a recap of that scene. I find it hard to describe, but it's a pretty crazy scene. The Ben. The Ben scene with. Um, Oh God! I know that I'm forgetting the actor's name who plays Ben now from Quantum Leap. But anyway, um, <laughs> that, that's what I. Well, that's the other thing I know him from. But yeah, that scene to me is just—it's really Jeffrey kind of going into, you know, the darkest heart of like what's going on, and it's. Oh God, it's so hard to describe. I mean, do you want me to literally describe like what happened? Yeah, kind of like, just kind of yeah. give me a like. I I I have it. I have a hard time processing it. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, basically, like Ben is Frank's drug dealer and in, in is the big guy in town. And Ben, at this point, Jeffrey's been caught by um, Frank Booth, and he's about to like you know, I, we don't really know what he's going to do to him, but he's trying to sc- either scare him. Or, you know, maybe planning to kill him. I don't know what at that point he's trying to do, but he takes them on this drug deal and they go to this guy, Ben's house, who's this like hyper effeminate, like kind of gay stereotype. But we don't really know if he's gay. He has all these women around and the lounging and they have the daughter kidnapped and it's just this nightmare scenario. He wasn't even like, he wasn't crazy over the top, like effeminate. In fact, I almost didn't even notice it at first. And then the more you talk to him, the more I'm like, oh, he's something... A little strange. Is it? Is he wearing makeup? What is he doing? Like yeah. it didn't appear to me. Like it wasn't like he came in with like a feather boa or something over the top like that. Like, but the more you go, the more it goes on. You're just like, this guy's. What is? What is his deal? Yeah. He, yeah. Is, is it? Is Dean Stockwell the actor? Dean Stockwell. Thank you. Yeah, Sorry. and he's. Um, I think he's an actor that Lynch has used more than a few times. I think he's in Lost Highway, if I'm not mistaken, as well. Uh, no, you're confusing him with... Um, oh, I'm confusing him with the guy who shot the dude. Who uh, shot, who, who killed his wife. <laughs> What's who, his yeah. name? They, they also have the white 
face, the kind of overly white face paint. David Lynch likes to do that a lot. <laughs> David you Lynch know. has a lot of quirks, doesn't he? <laughs> yes, he does. And he will repeat things over and over, like the white face paint, you know, the red curtains. That's things that he just likes and who knows why. He, he doesn't know why, like when people ask him. So, well, you um, know, I've heard this theory about great directors. Like, and there's this, um, there's that documentary that came out about Stanley Kubrick, uh, Room 237, you know, was it last year? And when it talked yeah. about how, you know, Kubrick had deliberately planned all these meanings in the movie. And the theory is that some filmmakers are just so good, are such, are such geniuses that this isn't planned at all. It's just that they, they were able to, they speak such, such a pure language of cinema that yeah. people are able to, in, to apply all this stuff to it. So my theory about the whole movie's a dream and it's about a, a guy dealing with abuse, I mean, that could be not his intention whatsoever, but there's enough there. It's so rich cinematically that you can make that work and totally, totally. Be, 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 write like a thesis about it. Um, mm-hmm. that, that's, I think, something. It's almost like there's two approaches to cinema. There are the people who are crafting something, the people who are like thinking deliberately about how am I going to phrase this or you know, uh, stage this or whatever. Then the other people who are more channeling something where they don't even understand. They just know that I, I see something, I see it, we have to do it this way. And it's interesting. I think both ways are both equally as artistic, but one of them may be just more like visceral and, and uh, subconscious. I think David Lynch probably belongs to that second category of somebody who is, totally doesn't even like you said, Eric. He doesn't even understand what why he's doing it. He just is channeling something either from his subconscious or from the underworld or what God knows what. Yeah, I mean, I've read enough interviews with him over the years to know that that's pretty much how he works. He refuses to discuss the meanings of any of his films. Like when people ask him, "What does you know blank mean?" He'll never tell you, but he will say that, like, you know, it's like, I just touched a, a hot hood of a car that was just turned on, and suddenly I got this flash of an image in my brain. Right, exactly. it, and I don't know what exactly. it means. That was, yep. That's how he works. That, that wasn't a, uh, that, w- that was a pretty good Lynch impression, I gotta say. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> um, so... Here's why it's hard for me to take the movie at face value. Obviously, it's a very strange movie, but I'm going to list things in the movie that just are so strange to me beyond that just kind of make the movie very hard for me to just to read it as a film. Like, And they seem like small and little, but it's it's something that my head just quite can't – my head can't wrap. I can't – my brain can't wrap my uh, – wrap, wrap around it properly. What am I trying to say, Mike? What am I trying to say? You can't wrap your head around That's it. That's it. Thank you. God, I got to get some sleep. <laughs> I am like on no sleep. Um, so the first thing is, um, isn't it weird how much they talk about beer in this movie? Like, hmm. they're, like, oh, but yeah. like, can, but like, and like, oh, can I really say, I, I love how uh, Frank is a hipster. He PBR. Likes, no, no you, you can trace the hipster obsession with PBR to Blue Velvet. Is that really? true? Oh, absolutely. Dude, I saw, I, I live in L.A., <laughs> I saw Blue Velvet the last time at Hollywood Forever Cemetery, which they do these screenings, and it's, you know, hipster central. When that PBR line comes up, erupting in cheers, I'm like, oh, this is where it started. <laughs> like, it started here, you know? I, 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 that's what I think. But they, I mean, they take time out of this movie to discuss how great Heineken is and how she's never had it because she's only had Bud. King that's of what Beers. It, and he says, ah, yeah. oh, the King of Beers. And when he's peeing, it's a plot point that it causes him to pee enough that he can't hear her horn hawk, horn honks because he's yeah. drinking too much Heineken. I didn't even make that yeah. connection. Uh, uh, it's just, huh. the, the, the role that average beer, like bad beer, 
Beard plays in this movie is crazy to me. And I think that he's trying to make a statement about how, you know, Budweiser is the stereotypically American, American beer, drink, yeah. is the American drink. And here's this kind of guy who's a little bit weird and he prefers the imported Heineken. <laughs> and then uh, I don't know the PBR thing with uh, Booth. Maybe that's just what I don't know what he drinks. It, it's hard well, to. That's like red, white, and blue colored beer. Like it's <laughs> the, pretty American yeah. too, I feel. Uh, the, other, the other thing that is just. Okay, so from the get-go, you know, we have this guy walking home from the hospital. The, the scene with his father, again, which is why I think there's this strange relationship between them, is they say nothing in that sequence. They just kind of sit yeah. and stare at one another. It's a very weird sequence, yeah, and especially for a loved one that is sick and or has just gone through something traumatic. And that adds to that my theory of there's something not right about this relationship. I thought when I saw that scene, I assumed that he had come home from being away for a very long time, like years, like 10 years, and it was the first time he saw his father in a while. Like, that's how, that's the impression I got. And then as it went on, I'm like, I guess I was just me. Well, he's supposed to be, college. he's yeah, supposed he's to be a college student. He's the oldest no, college seemed, student of all time. Like, <laughs> but he's a college student, supposedly. It seemed like, it seemed to me that he, yeah, he was a, like an estranged father, or he, you know, it was kind of like that weird, but... I don't. Yeah, obviously, clearly it wasn't. It's just that it was a very strange uh, direction for that scene. I and guess. then he walks home and he finds this ear, and you're like, oh, he's walking home because he doesn't have a car. He has no reliable means of transportation. And literally, the next time you see him, he's driving the coolest car like yeah. ever. He's driving a red convertible with like. But he does like taking walks. He said that a couple. Like you know, they go out for a walk. Yeah. It's just his thing, I guess. Is kind of a weird guy. He just likes <laughs> to go for walks. And that ad his car as this it is a very 1980s film but also has this underlying 1950s vintage aesthetic. oh totally yeah that's a, yeah that's everything that lynch does too he has like, like you, well twin peaks is that way with like it's kind of stuck in the 50s and mulholland drive kind of a little bit too there's a, a kind of golden age of hollywood kind of like time didn't progress in lynch's works but it also, yeah, but it does take place in or 80s or 90s or whatnot because even Twin Peaks definitely takes place in the 1980s, supposedly, right? Yeah, yeah, it's, it's set in, yeah, and so does this one. I mean, I think that they, there's definitely clues that let you know that this is, you know, contemporary to when the movie was released, but what were the cl- really very I, few. Eric, like, I was watching this thing and I thought, I'm like, I can't place it. Is it 50s? Is it 70s? Like, what the hell time period does this take place in? I, and <laughs> right. I, I just assumed it was 50, like weird 50s, but maybe not that great of an art department. Like, they kind of like half-assed <laughs> it or I don't know. I think it's all pretty intentional, but it's, yeah. it's this weird milieu. We've talked for, you know, you know, about 30 minutes so far, and we have yet to talk about... Uh, the female presence in this film. And I really want to discuss, um, it's, it's Isabella Rosalini, right? Yes. Um, okay, so when this movie came out, it's very famous that Gene Siskel loved it. It's one of his favorite movies of the year. I think he said it was the best movie of 1986. Um, but at the same time, Roger Ebert has a very famous take that this is one of the most misogynistic movies of all time. And right. I want to know if you can talk towards that. Is Is he using Rosalini in a way that is... Is is not kosher? Is it is is what he doing offensive in any way or not? I mean, I can completely see where people would be offended by it. I mean, it, it's I don't think it's a feminist movie. I wouldn't go that far, <laughs> but I don't necessarily. Yeah. I think that her abuse has a point. I mean, it's it's not just gratuitous, no matter how over the top it is. And I and I think that that's the real dividing factor between something being misogynist and something you know being not. You know, yeah, it's like, are we trying think... to use that abuse as a way to illuminate something, which I think the movie is. I, I, I don't know. 
What do you think, Michael? I, 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 didn't, I didn't get the impression that the movie was to bash women at all. I, I didn't get that. Because even she is somewhat of a strong character in her own way. I think, um, what's her name? His, his, uh, Sandy is, is a strong character in her own way. Um, mm-hmm. I know, I never got the impression. I mean, obviously, you're seeing somebody hit her, and she's asking people to hit her. But um, I never really got the impression. In some ways, she has a lot of power over the men, if you think about it. Like, she had power over... Jeffrey, I mean, she holds a bit knife point. Makes yeah, him I think like, that that's my biggest argument for it not being a misogynistic film is after he's, you know, after he, uh, when he comes out of the closet for the first time, she has complete control over him in yeah. that sequence. And even you think about when she's singing, he, she catches him and uh, and Frank, both of them in a spell. When she's singing, the two of them are just like staring at her in awe. Like It, it doesn't strike me that, that there's, it never even crossed my mind, actually. Well, that's Well, Frank has total power over her. And then she kind of takes that kind of abusive like power play and does it on Jeffrey. But it's a you weird. Know, she reverses it, you know. I mean, yeah, but the, he, she has power. He has physical power over him. But I feel like she has. He's addicted to her in some weird way. Like oh yeah. He cuts a piece of her dress to carry with him. Like, it, in a sense, I mean, yeah. Ultimately, the, he has physical control over. Her, but I feel like she's the one that hasn't been snared. You know, if she realized that, I think she could have a lot more uh, control over him because he's totally caught up in it. He's caught up in her, and he's in. You know just enthralled by what, who she is and what she is. And he just, that's how he exacts it or, or uh, um, expresses it, I guess, is through this horrific... And there's a part of her that, on some level, in some sick way, likes it. Because when she hooks up with Jeffrey... Oh, yeah, she wants You know, be, she's yeah. like, hit me. Like, hit me. Like, that's what she thinks is love, or that's what she thinks is affection. Yeah. And I, I don't know. I mean, I definitely wouldn't go on and say, like I said that it's a feminist take on a character, but at the same time, I don't think that it's coming from a point of view of, of the David Lynch or anybody hating women. So, so none of like, I mean, well, if you think about the nudity in the film, it's a very non-sexualized form of nudity. Like nothing is mm. meant to, like when she's naked, I don't think it's ever meant to titillate. Like there's nothing about that. And Eric, obviously mm. you're going to have a very different take on this than me, but, right. uh, but, um, but like, She's she's either vulnerable or abused or in a terrible state. Like the scene at the end when you know he's yeah. covering her up. You want to see him cover her up. Right. Like, yeah. There's yeah. there's no desire to see her naked anymore. Even right? when she appears, it's it's not it's not alluring. It's terrifying. But she just pops up in the background, and my girlfriend didn't oh my see God, it. Yeah. I was like, oh my oh my god, what is look over there? <laughs> like it's just it's weird. It's disturbing. There's nothing about it. Like even when she's in the bathroom, she's undressing. It's not like it's it's happening slowly, and the camera's teasing a little bit. She just like strips down. She's in the bathroom, and he's like, he's obviously very. Um, going. This is kind of a, a change in topic, but you mentioned at the start of the show, Eric, that there are people that attempt to do what Lynch and Kubrick do but fail. Can you give an? Can you think of an example oh of, of like a movie like that you've seen <laughs> yes, either recently can. that you think is trying to do this but doesn't work? And I'm curious to I, see if I can be like, oh, I see why that doesn't work, but Lynch does. I, like, I can't really say recently that I've seen anything like that. And when I'm talking about those kind of movies, it tends to be like, like you said, student films or something at like a film festival or something from people you've never heard of and might never hear from again. And it's like, oh, this this sucks. Like, this is so trying too hard. <laughs> like, you know what I'm saying? It's not really anything specific, especially from Hollywood lately, who doesn't do anything that daring like anymore. Um, I, yeah, I can't really think to anything specifically but it's just it's just that feeling that you get when you watch you know 
again, like it's a student film. Well, you or can't. Some... I, I think that the. I guess, I guess the overarching point is you can't fake weirdness. Like you. Th- no. This, this is the kind of thing. This is the modern art argument that like, oh, my kid could paint that. You know, like anyone could do that. Anyone can make something that's weird right. or incomprehensible. But there is still a. There's still a coherence to Lynch's work in all of his movies. Even the uh, I actually have never yeah. seen. I've never seen the one he shot on digital with. Um, oh, oh, don't. <laughs> Inland, Inland Empire. I've never seen that one. Um, no. But you know, Mulholland Drive, uh, um, Lost Highway, Blue Velvet. All those movies. There's still something to latch onto, whether it be character work or something sure. that kind of connects you uh, to what's going on. And that is my argument. When people come up to me, I'm like, Oh, I just can't get into Lynch because he's 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 just making it up as he goes along, and there's no you know, part of it that actually... And that's partially true, but... <laughs> yeah. But he's really but good at making it up th- as there's it goes something, <laughs> There's something about this that felt very rich to me. There's certain scenes... Like, that apartment, I don't know what it was, but it just felt very real and just very, like, just... There's a lot to a lot to take out of it. And I couldn't even... It's something that affected me, I think, on a very deep level, a very, like, subconscious level. I'm sure it's the same for David Lynch. I feel like his style is something that's very easily... It's easy to imitate it. I feel like you know when someone is copying it, but... I don't think if it comes from the same place as his does, you're not going to be able to get something that is the same thing. You know, you can make like, oh, I'm going to set up a weird shot with a weird character and do, but unless you you are channeling whatever the hell this guy's channeling, like (laughs) you're not going to get the same result. It's just not going to be the same because he's seeing something deeper that we're and we're seeing something deeper too as we're watching. I mean, even that scene, like when he walks into the apartment, uh, the murder scene, and the the husband's there in the chair and his face is like kind of like frozen in that that look of terror, Mm -hmm. and you got the guy standing there who's still alive, but with his head blown apart or like and he's just kind of standing there and there's a noise and he like lashes his arm out like that whole scene was so disturbing that actually Seriously. might have been the, the, set, the maybe the most disturbing more than the Beatles for me but uh, that was pretty it's it pretty dark it's creepy yeah. uh, I think my wife walked in while I was watching that scene great timing she's like what yeah. the hell are you watching <laughs> and it's like I couldn't have planned a worse time for you to walk in on me watching this um, wow. I want so the movie has a lot of um Maybe I think parody is the wrong word, but there's a lot of satirical elements as well to the film because the dialogue has a very stilted, unnatural mm-hmm. quality at times. But I think that's also incredibly intentional. Like it, it, it and um, I don't know. Does that kind of thing distance you all from watching it? Like, oh, I can't get into this because they're talking like no person would talk, or is that? Is that something that just kind of endears you to the strangeness as that, it were? Yes, yes. It felt it, like this is kind of like, oh, this is just how these weird people talk. And I want to learn about these weird people. Because you meet weird people that talk like that all the time. Like, it's not real in the sense of that's not what, you know, it's colloquial or like um, uh, the, the uh, whatever. It's colloquial. Let's go with that. <laughs> it's not like what, what you normally hear people speak. But there are people who act like that and, and, and talk like that and that kind of thing. Um Eric, yeah. go ahead, sorry. Yeah, no, it's totally endearing to me. I love yeah. that kind of again, it's 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 like a archie, you know, Riverdale kind of stilted way of talking that, you know, probably people really did in like the fifties when David Lynch was growing up. And like I do think it's a reflection of the world of his childhood. Where did you he know? grow up? What is where is he from? His bio like just says Eagle Scout, Missoula, Montana, and nothing else. Like, has no other movies that he's done or art that he's made. It, so we know. I know that he's from Missoula, Montana, and I think he also grew up at some point in the Pacific Northwest too, which okay. would make sense. That would make the, sense. But like the yeah. dialogue, like as stilted as it is, there's a very big difference for of that uh, between that dialogue and say, for instance, like 
Star Wars prequel stilted dialogue. <laughs> right. You know what I mean? And, and, and like it's, it, what is it that makes it feel like, oh, it's just bad writing? Humor. Or it's just There's weird. humor behind it. There's, it, it, yeah. it. You feel like it's intentionally stilted, whereas I, with Star Wars, you don't. Like it, <laughs> you feel like there's someone it's, struggling. <laughs> it's someone struggling, exactly. Um, um, I think that's a really good way. That's a really astute point. Like there, when you there's intentionality behind something, um, it can it can provide it with a certain uh, sense of resonance or meaning. Um, I want to talk to you about. You're a big Twin Peaks fan. I know a huge Twin Peaks huge. fan. Um, what are your thoughts on Kyle MacLachlan as an actor? Like because he's had this interesting career where he's he's not a movie star. I wouldn't say like he's not. No, he's but, a character actor. But he's been in a ton of stuff. But he's got movie star looks. I would argue he's a yeah. he's a he's like a he's a he's he a very, could have been a movie star. It's just you know a lot of that's luck and the right parts. You he's, know? he's a conventionally handsome man. He's got the Rob Lowe esque like his um, chin comes out like <laughs> yeah. five feet from his face. But why? Um, I mean, what about him, you know, prevents him from becoming that leading man? Is it just that it never happened for him? Or I think it never happened for him. I mean, he got I, – I know he wanted that. I think after Twin Peaks, he very much was like, I'm going to be a movie star. And he was in a lot of Hollywood movies. Unfortunately, one of them was Showgirls, which derailed everybody's oh, career totally for about Oh, I totally forgot about years. that. Yeah. Yeah. You've got, um, a, you've it, got a love for that movie, don't you? Oh, I, I, yeah. Showgirls is my favorite bad movie ever. <laughs> like, and it's funny because it's like Kyle MacLachlan then is like, he's in one of my favorite things that I like for real, which is Twin Peaks and like Blue Velvet. And then he's in this other thing that I absolutely love for the complete opposite reasons. And, mm. and he's terrible in that. Like there are people <laughs> in Showgirls who kind of know that it's a bad movie and, and give fun performances. He's not one of them. He's just bad. <laughs> so I think that he, it, that's one of the reasons. Um, yeah. I don't really know why he's not a bigger star. I don't either. Um, I thought, I thought he did great. I like, I, I've Portlandia. I'm a big fan of, and I've seen, oh, you know, yeah, that's how I, I feel too. like I really got to know him that way. And he's fantastic. And even in this movie, when it first starts out and he's speaking all weird in the beginning, I'm like, oh, I guess he's just not that great of an actor. And then later <laughs> on, as it goes on, I'm like, no, he he is. He's good. Like he's, he's oh, yeah. pulling off a lot of those scenes. Uh, <laughs> I just love that reaction. This guy sucks. Why did they cast him? In what this, this guy's? Oh, oh huh. Um, I guess I gotta ask you. I mean, are are you as a huge Twin Peaks fan? Are you looking forward to this new Twin Peaks? Are oh my you, God! Are you kidding? Well, I mean, I've been I mean, waiting. You're probably your whole lifetime for that. Well, but at the same time, though, isn't it isn't it this kind of diminishing returns thing where it can never live up to whatever expectation you have for sure. it? Sure. And are you scared I, 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 of having that experience where you're just like, this isn't what I wanted? Or is it it's yeah, better left alone? write it off and be like, ah, it, was in, it never existed. Like the Star Wars prequels never really existed for me. Ah, but see, like, I, I'm, I don't know. Go, I, go ahead. Sorry. I'm one of those people who, yeah, I, I'm happy to get what I get. And if I really hate it, then I'll just pretend it doesn't exist. And But again, <laughs> with Twin Peaks, is one of those things. That's, it's, it ends on a spectacular cliffhanger. And I really never thought that we'd get a resolution. So yeah, I'm completely psyched for whatever they're going to do. So, and if it ends up being like, you know, Indiana Jones and the kingdom of the crystal skull, then I'll just never watch it again. But like, I, I'm pretty good at like, I, I'm not one of those people who retroactively hates any property that I love based on bad sequels because I'm a horror movie fan. And if that was the way that I, I would never <laughs> like anything because almost every horror movie has terrible sequels. Yeah. And I just choose to ignore the ones I don't like. And, and I'm with that way with star Wars too. It's like, I don't like, you know, the majority of the prequels and I just don't watch them. You know, the is ones that, I don't like is this new reboot. Is it with the same cast? Well, and, supposedly uh, Lynch, yeah, Lynch, it's a sequel and Lynch yeah. was attached to direct and then he got pulled off. But now 
apparently he's back, right? He's going to be doing this. Yeah, he's going to do it. No, it was a, they were having a dispute over money, and that's what that was all about, and he's back now. So and... um, I, I'm, I'm very curious to see not only how, it, how it, that, that series you know, exists in 2015 or 2016 when it comes out, uh, and I'm curious to see what the public reaction is going to be to it, you know, because we oh, live... I am too. Because we live in this world now where every TV show, no matter how small the audience has this place on the internet, like imagine if a movie like Blue Velvet comes out now and you have this forum to discuss about it and analyze it with people right. that, it, I mean, that didn't exist then and you can, it, it, it never will in the same way. Like you can't go back. So, so when it, it's in the cultural zeitgeist, it'll be in a place... Where we can, I'm, I'm looking forward to that experience, just seeing how the world oh, me kind too. of. I mean, I think that might be even more fun than the actual uh, show. So we'll we'll have to see when it all kind of um, kind of comes together. My final question for you, Eric, kind of closing out here, is you you mentioned you saw this in a theatrical. You saw it with a, a large audience in a theatrical setting or an outdoor uh, screening. For yeah, it. yeah, recently, yeah. So what was that experience like? Like, kind of describe that. I mean, were there were there other Lynchian virgins there? Or did you get there to watch to it? Been, yeah. did, did you get to I, see I it through someone's eyes? Who'd you go with to see it uh, in that setting? I mean, I went with a bunch of my friends, and it's that place gets really packed. I mean, there's, there's thousands of people there, probably a couple thousand. And um, I, I'm just, there had to have been people who've never seen it before. Um, I don't really know. Like all the people in my group had seen it, so I don't really know. But there was definitely like some people like kind of freaking out when like <laughs> you know Frank Booth arrived. You know, we know what scene I'm talking about yeah. when. Yep. When that happens, there was a, a few people who were like, oh, my God. Like, I heard, like, you know, people in, like, the little picnic area next to me be like, oh, no. They were just not – they weren't having it. <laughs> but but then they were just keep watching because they were just fascinated. Like, oh, this is why this movie has all this kind of a following. Like, it takes this weird turn that you, you're not expecting. And um, but I mean I did see it with I, I would imagine that the majority of the people I saw it with at that screen were probably fans. Well, um, so they're kind of laughing along and doing lines and kind of you know dressed up as Frank Booth. <laughs> that's just a different. If, when you see when you any say kind doing lines, like that, do you mean repeating dialogue or doing lines of cocaine? Because oh, either one, oh, I really it's see. L.A. So both. It's <laughs> L.A. Both. So there was a good chance for. I meant re- dialogue, but yeah, it's L.A. So there was a good chance for both. Um, um, I, 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 I feel uh, a little saddened that I couldn't get your dad onto this podcast to tell me about the experience of watching it with your mom. I don't think I've, I've tried to ask him and he says like, I don't remember. I don't And I'm like, and he's my got mom, PTSD. Really like, leave him alone. He yeah. doesn't want to talk about like, it. I just laugh because I was really, I mean, I was, I guess, 86. So I'm at the time 11 and I, you know, I, I didn't know that they had even gone to see it. It was years later he told me, and I'm like, what was that like <laughs> to take my mother to see that movie? <laughs> and she got mad. All I know is that she got mad at him uh, because she thought it was pornography. <laughs> yeah, so, yep, yep. And yeah, from up to my mom, it probably was. Well, <laughs> yeah, I, um, I can't imagine my dad ever watching this movie. Um, Mike, as someone who's a big fan of symbolism in films and kind of getting like a deeper meaning of them, are, is this movie enough of a spark for you to want to check out other Lynchian work, or is it kind of being like, you know what, I think I got it, <laughs> I'm good? Like, I or are you like, or are you like one of those people that becomes like super intrigued? Is like, now I got to check out his other stuff. I think I'm a little more on the first camp. Like, I'm, I'm kind of afraid. I'm not necessarily like I don't want to see more. I'm like, I'm intrigued. I think he, I, I'd be curious, but I think you, you know. should. I think that 
Mulholland Drive is a movie that's like three hours long, so it's it's an investment. I but mean, I, now I'm intrigued you know, by the homeless guy scene. I gotta but see you you're gotta about. see it for that yeah. scene, man. That homeless yeah. guy scene may be my top like fifty scenes of all and the, time. And then it, like Eraserhead has always been intriguing. Uh, Eraserhead is very odd, but I've heard like it's not for the weak of heart. I've actually no. never seen Eraserhead. That's a, that's a Lynchian gap. Guess so. what we're doing next week? Oh boy! <laughs> no, no. You know, honestly, I mean, I'm not just saying that because I'm a big fan. I mean. I think Twin Peaks is, is the most Lynchian and also the most mainstream of anything he's done that would appeal to somebody. It has the darkness of Blue Velvet. I'm talking about the TV show, not right. the movie necessarily. But like, it has all that darkness, but it's also really funny and light. It, it's a perfect combination of all of those elements, you know, but into something that's more mainstream. You said Twin Peaks, But I also right? think yes. it's the best thing he's ever done because of that. Yeah, they made a movie uh, called uh, Walk, Fi- what is it called? Firewalk uh, with Me Fire is the Walk. prequel. Yeah, which is much more like a Blue Velvet type thing. It's okay. much darker. It's David Lynch without Mark Frost, who's the show's co-creator, kind of unhinged. You know, no <laughs> network censors, no worry about that. Not a lot, There are a lot of fans of the show who don't like the movie. But the first 18 episodes of that show are pretty flawless and I think it's probably the elements of Blue Velvet that you like without some of the more disturbing elements, or at least not constantly disturbing. Well, it, you know, also, it just, yeah, it, because of network, you know, you can't, yeah. there's only so much you can do on network television in the 1980s. There was only so much you could do, yeah. <laughs> and from what I've heard, I mean, people who have watched Twin Peaks have always heard that it starts out real strong, that the first season's amazing, and then the second season starts falling off, right? Is this... It halfway, when I say the first 18 episodes, it's, yeah, that there's only eight episodes in the first season, and then... The nine following that in the second season are pretty great. And then basically once the main murder mystery is resolved, like the who killed Laura Palmer hook is it was they were forced to resolve it. Basically, David Lynch bailed on the show. Essentially, like he didn't <laughs> then, want yeah. to. He never wanted to resolve it and basically left a bunch of newbie writers who had never run a television show to kind of have to deal with it. And then try to and then he, him and you can't yeah. do that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And there's some really bad like. Like what I was talking about earlier of like people trying to be weird and they're not and it comes yeah. off as phony. <laughs> then David Lynch comes back for the end of the show, you know, towards the end it corrects itself, but it's, it was too late. But yeah, when I'm talking about Twin Peaks, I mean those first like 17, 18 episodes. Well, if I'm not mistaken, it is available to stream right now on Netflix, right? Yep. So I mean, yep. that's uh, if, give it a shot. that might be something to. Uh, you it's know. Kyle MacLachlan, right? He's still yeah, he's yeah. In it. This okay. is he's a Lynchian he's a star. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, so I guess kind of going around, Robin, Eric, any final thoughts on this movie? I mean, I don't know how often you said you've just rewatched recently, but you saw it. Oh, it was screening. like last year, yeah. Um, um, I mean, like when uh, is is this a movie that either surprises you every time you see it? Like, what is your, I guess your takeaway of Blue Velvet? Um, I don't know if it surprises me still every time I watch it. <laughs> I, I I definitely always feel something every time that I watch it. I'm always just as scared and always just as intrigued and i think it just because I, I go back to being a 15 year old when i first encountered it and i think the, the what appealed to me about it when i was that age is you know i'm from suburbia i'm like a major suburban kid who, in a neighborhood where nothing ever happens and that movie kind of posited in my mind like what if there's really weird sick stuff going on behind your neighbor's closed doors and wouldn't <laughs> that be is. awful wouldn't that be awful but kind of cool you know <laughs> like there's just that part of me and, and it i really respond to that and I also think that it has, you know, for all the darkness, Lynch is really good at balancing it with this kind of genuine hopefulness, like at the end with the Robins and the, he's not being like facetious. Like he really does believe in that kind of like good will win out, 
you know, over evil kind of scenario, I think. Yeah, I don't mm-hmm. think, I think that's a good point. I don't think it's a mean-spirited movie. No. It's not. Yeah, that's, I think that's why I didn't hate it. I think because it was like, <laughs> you know, I think it was trying to do something good here. It tried to, yeah. So, yeah, uh, I, 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 that's really what I think I always get away from it, or take away from it, is that, like, as horrible as all that stuff is, you know, like, they're still good in the world. Like, that's really what he's trying to say. And I don't know, that al- it always moves me. That's awesome. Um, Mike? What are you, what are your final thoughts on the on the film uh, going out? <laughs> I kind of well before I get into it real quick, I just want to do. I love playing this like, oh, did you see what's his name in the movie? Um, did you see Brad Dourif as the he's one of the cronies who is um, Who's Brad Dourif. He is kind of like a bit actor. He he's played uh, Worm Tongue in Lord of the Rings. He was Billy Babbitt in uh, oh. One Flew of the Cuckoo's He was in Dune. Yeah, a yeah, lot yeah, of, yeah. A, a lot of these people in in Blue Velvet come from it. Right. Blue Velvet's kind of born out of the fiasco of Dune. So a lot <laughs> of people um, from that movie end up in this in this one. Yeah. Nice. Yeah, um, just, I wasn't sure if that was him, and I caught fleeting glimpses. Like, I think that's the guy. I think that's him. Henry, Portrait of a Serial Killer. That's him, right? I want to say. Um, I, I'm not going to ask. Him. Okay, okay. I'm pretty sure. <laughs> yeah. Um, but anyway, that... Um, as far as the movie itself, and I want to I want to go off of what Erica just said about like you know wondering about what's happening behind your neighbor's fences. I would even go. I just recently I went for a walk in like the suburbs of Arlington. Oh, here Virginia, we go. Here and, we go. Uh, don't worry, I'm not going to Dave Glenn's this. You won't get a story from my <laughs> eighth grade. I hope Dave's listening to this. So um, and you're walking around, you just see like so many houses. Like a house is says so much about like a person and a family. Like they're so rich. There's so much like the way a fence is painted or what's in the yard or what they what they don't have in the yard. Like, it's just so interesting. And I think seeing this, like, this woman's apartment, um, it, it, something about it was just so intriguing. Like, the, the decor was, it was just this, mm-hmm. it was, everything was pink, but, like, in this gross, weird kind of, like, days gone by, glamour kind of feel to it. And, and, and you know, the same thing with, like, the dress and her, everything about the movie I thought was just very, the set of that apartment I thought was one of the, the best things I had going for it. And um, I, I think in some way that that, kind of I understand why Jeffrey wanted to kind of break in and just see what was in there there was something intriguing about like anytime you you know you go uh, I'm trying to think one like I, back then I used to sell candy door to door really I'm Dave, Dave Glanzing this I would sell candy door to door and you kind of get invited into the person's house while they get money and you can kind of see what, the way they live and what's going on inside there and it's just there are their own worlds there, mm-hmm. they can be just weird things going on or like it's just yeah yeah it's a crazy Secrets world, are intriguing, huh? you know. Yeah. Mysteries are intriguing, you know. Yeah, I think that, that that's the human inclination, uh, the the curiousness of humanity, right? So, um, yep. I think that's a good way to leave it. I think we did some good blue velveting here. Mm-hmm. Um, that didn't, uh, right. didn't sound good at all, um, Eric. I know you don't know. Da- I know you don't know Dave, but I think we should all three of us congratulate him on the birth of his daughter today. So congratulations, congratulations absolutely. Congratulations, <laughs> um, podcast baby. Oh you know, yeah, podcast baby. We'll have her on very soon to discuss baby geniuses, both one and two. Uh, but um, <laughs> Eric, where can people find you on the internet if they want to? If they're so inclined to check out your uh, to check you out on your online. varied works, your varied yeah, works. Yeah, my, um, I usually write for the Nerdist, and you can find me on Twitter at Geek Boy Eric. 
Yeah, he's uh, he joined Twitter after me, and he has like surpassed my amount of followers in like two weeks. So <laughs> obviously, me? he's did be- I really? I think so. I think you're a lot better at Twitter than I am. I uh, don't think I'm good at Twitter at all, but thank you. <laughs> Sick tweeting, bro. <laughs> and Ooh. Mike, Mike, where can people find you on the internet? You can find me on Twitter with much less followers than either of these two men uh, at mikemirandi.com, and uh, you can find me. Nope, I did. I did it again at mikemirandi on Twitter or mikemirandi.com. And uh, you can find me uh, at Twitter. At Ivan Kander, that's K N D E R, and uh, my website is Lucky Nine Studios dot com dot com. And if you want to find us on the web here, this episode was actually uh, requested requested Ooh. by a listener. <laughs> so um, if you want, uh, there's a certain movie you want us to discuss, or you know, uh, we'd be happy to attempt to fit it into our busy schedule. You can uh, contact us at contact at reviewedpodcast.com. We're very at, important. At facebook.com slash reviewedpodcast and at reviewedpodcast.com. Uh, that being said, Mike, what is our next movie? I think we're going to take a stab, no pun intended, at Gladiator. The Ridley Scott Classic. Classic. Gladiator we're going to be discussing, uh, which should be a good time. I'm not quite sure when that episode's going to go live because Dave has a new human that he has to take care (laughs) of and there's weirdness in summer scheduling. But check the Facebook page and we'll make sure that we will try to keep to our uh, bi-monthly schedule or bi-weekly. How do you say that? Bi-monthly, I guess, right? Uh, Yes. Um, But Eric, thanks so much for coming on, man. This was a pleasure. Oh, you're very welcome. This was fun. Uh, And uh, uh, does anyone want to croon a little blue velvet to to take us out? (laughs) No? Uh, no. Okay. <laughs> All right. Thank you for Thank you for taking that. Who was that? Who was that? That's so weird. It wasn't me. <laughs>